Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Just and the Suffering podcast featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips, and this week's show, we have a challenge ahead of us. We are in, as Bill Simmons put on Twitter today, the dullest week in sports. I'm paraphrasing there, but basically, the week after the All-Star game, week before training camp, not a ton going on, but we do have a good show for you this week. We do have some interesting stuff in golf. The Open Championship this week, the final major of the year coming up. I'll be speaking with our golf guy, Dan Martini in just a bit. Dan will break down the Open Championship, some players to watch, his picks to win, and a little bit of the fun information about how the FedEx Cup playoffs, how all that changed a bit this year. That's going to be coming up in later in the show. I also have going to speak to Zach Lewis, former Iona point guard with Gale Nation this year. Gale Nation and the TVT tournament. That's coming up in a couple of weeks. I'm going to talk to Zach about his time at Iona, his time as a pro overseas in Switzerland, and the upcoming tournament for Gale Nation. They are playing in TVT in a couple of weeks up in Syracuse. That's coming up as well. Make sure you're locked into the end of the show for this week's two-minute drill where I break down the end of the Wimbledon championships. And boy, we had a fun second week at the All-England Club. I'll break it all down for you in a bit, but we'll get it all rolling with this this week's opening tip. We're going to discuss the latest wave of Noah Syndergaard trade rumors and what that means right after this. Miguel Rojas will lead it off. And Syndergaard pops the mitt that time. Strike three called to get Miguel Rojas. That's the fourth straight strikeout for Syndergaard, his fifth of the night. And strike three called to Cooper. 100 miles an hour from Syndergaard. Five straight strikeouts, six on the night. The last three have all been looking. Chopper, an easy hop for Ahmed Rosario on a 1-2-3 inning for Noah Syndergaard. He's retired seven straight. All right, we are back with this week's opening tip. That's called, you just heard, courtesy of SMY's Wayne Randazzo. Noah Syndergaard's great start against the Miami Marlins over the weekend. He goes seven innings, gives up two runs, strikes out nine. Mets win a road series for the first time since April, which explains a lot about why they are where they are in the standings. But, again, 42-51. The, the math is still alive that they could, maybe if they get their act together, make a run at the wild card because the second wild card team, only three above 500, only six games ahead of them in the standings, but their year's done. Let's be honest. It's the same thing we talked about last year where we're at the trade deadline and we're talking about who the Mets are selling as opposed to who they may be looking at to add for a playoff run. And at first, I didn't think there was going to be much interesting stuff going on here. Figured the Mets would do what they usually do, sell the rental guys, trade Zach Wheeler away, try and get value for Todd Frazier, Jason Vargas. Don't always take Juan Lagares, you're stuck with him, but not much beyond that. But then over the All-Star break, Stuff starts coming out again. The Noah Syndergaard rumors are coming out again. We had them last July. Nothing happened then. We had them in the winter, a lot of them. And there was plenty of buzz about how Brody wanted to listen to Syndergaard offers, get takes on Syndergaard. Nothing happened there. It's coming out again. This is the third time now in a span of a calendar year we have Noah Syndergaard trade rumors heating up again and again. Brady Van Wagenen last week finally came out of hiding did some did some press stuff on Friday. Talked to Mike Francis on WFAN. Denied that Noah Syndergaard is getting moved. But you know what? These rumors have been going on for so 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 long. It just feels inevitable. Whether it's within the next two weeks, whether it's the off season, whether it's next July, it just feels like he's gonna get moved. There's something here that just they don't like. The fact that they are not hanging up the phone on a 26-year-old right-hander with electric stuff, two-plus years of team control left, and a guy who can win the Cy Young when everything is great and has the potential to throw a no-hitter every time he goes out there. The fact you're not hanging up the phone for that guy means that they see something they don't like and they are trying to capitalize on his value, whatever they can get for him at some point, and move on. Should they move him? I'm not so sure. Last year, if you asked this question, I would have said no. But it's a tricky situation this year. Syndergaard's slider has not been very good. It really hasn't. But then again, no one's slider has been very good thanks to this juiced-up baseball that, I mean, the league bought Rawlings and is trying to investigate what's wrong with the ball. We see what happened with Edwin Diaz with the slider. The slider has been useless, and he's getting hit left and right and getting lit up like a Christmas tree on multiple occasions. So right now, Syndergaard's ERA is just over 4.5. Do you want to sell low? On him right now, which you could do. 
have them fix the baseball, and the next year he's off in, let's say, Houston, he's being great again? Do you want to take that chance? Or do you try and capitalize on him and say, you know what? It's not going to get any higher here. I'm going to cash my chips out, get some assets to help make this team better. It's something you have to consider because the Met roster, it's deep in some areas and basically non-existent in others because this team has a glut of corner infielders and corner outfielders. They have so many guys who can play first base and third base, yet their shortstop situation is a mess. They have no center fielder. They have not had one for about five years now. Wilson Ramos, while he's hitting, has been bad behind the plate to the point that Syndergaard and Jacob DeGrom both don't want to pitch to him anymore. They both want Tomas Nito. So let's say, for instance, the Houston Astros call you up here, and they say, you know what? We'll give you an up-the-middle prospect. We'll give you a pitching prospect, let's say Forrest Whitley, another player close to the majors for Noah Syndergaard. Do you do it? I at least consider the offer because... The Mets have to be open to everything because this model they have right now, it's not working. They have way too many similar assets in certain areas of the team and not enough assets in others. So you might need to consolidate some chips in tournament players at positions of other needs. So if Syndergaard gets you a center fielder, a young pitching prospect, and another player who can help you, I strongly consider it. My question is this. Let's say you do pull the trigger here and you ship off Noah Syndergaard. Why are you trading Zach Wheeler? Who exactly is going to start games on this team next year? Now I get it. Wheeler's trade value right now is pretty much sunk because he went on the disabled... Sorry, not the disabled list. The injured list this morning with shoulder fatigue. So he's going to be out until the 23rd. He's not going to make more than two starts for the deadline at best. Your value shot him, but let's say he was healthy. Why are you trading him? If you're trading Syndergaard at some point, and you're trading Wheeler, who is starting games for this team next season? You have Jacob DeGrom. Great. You have an ace. Terrific. Then you have Steven Matz, who has been up and down. Um, okay, we're going to say he's a given. He's a guy who be a back-of-the-rotation type guy. Fine. Then what? Who's starting games? You're going to trust Anthony Kay, who hasn't played in the big leagues this year and has been roughed up in four starts to Syracuse? You're trusting him with one spot. Are you putting Seth Lugo back in the rotation? If you're putting him back in the rotation, what's happening in the bullpen? Because you need him in that bullpen, which is pretty much a disaster right now. Are you signing free agent starters? Because don't forget, Jason Vargas is a free agent too. So you might be replacing three starters if you're trading Syndergaard and you're trading Wheeler and you're letting Vargas walk if you can't trade him. I think you keep Wheeler and you say, you know what, we're going to sign him and we believe we can fix him. Maybe then you explore a Syndergaard tree and try and get some assets here. Maybe you do that Astros package where you get back Forrest Whitley and, say, another young outfielder. But if I'm the Mets, I think you have to be open to anything. I think anyone who did not make the All-Star team this year, and the clarification, that is Jacob DeGrom, Pete Alonzo, Jeff McNeil. I think those three have to be untouchable. I think anybody else on the roster, you have to be open to moving them. I'm not saying right now you do a Marlins and you fire sale everybody. What I'm saying is if you make put it out there and say, hey, I'm listening to offers from Michael Conforto. Make me an offer. I'll listen to offers for Ahmed Rosario. I'll listen to offers for Stephen Matz and Zach Wheeler and Noah Syndergaard. I will listen to an offer for Wilson Ramos. Like I will do whatever I have to do to come up with a different kind of strategy with this team. This is a team supposed to be built on pitching. He has neglected defense for years and years and years and has come back to bite them in the butt in the worst way possible. Now, are they going to do anything drastic for the deadline? Probably not. They'll probably just do the usual stuff. Send Wheeler off wherever they can get. Dump the salaries of Todd Frazier, Jason Vargas, and just get rid of them to career space on the roster. But this is a time where we, when Brody got hired, were praising him for his creativity and his vision. It's time for him to show that creativity and that vision and be open-minded to ways to fix the Mets because what he's done so far, it's not working very well. Up next, we're going to go to the links for a little bit. We're going to talk golf with Dan Martini right after this. One final birdie. And at last, Francesco Molinari can give rein to his emotions. 
All right, we are back on the Just and the Suffering podcast. That call you has heard a birdie late in the final round of the Open Championship for last year's winner, Francesco Molinari. We are here for the final golf major of the year, and since this Just and the Suffering audience loves golf, decided to bring back our golf guy to preview the Open Championship this week, Dan Martini. Dan, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Mike. I'm glad to be here. Glad to talk about the last real big event here before the FedEx Cup playoff starts getting going. Absolutely. So before we dive into it, let's do pair tradition. Can you give me a little bit about the course? Sure. So uh, this week we're at the British Open. Uh, we're at Royal Portrush, the Dunless course. Uh, the course itself um, is it's really interesting. Um, there's plenty of articles online. You can actually look at what they've done. But just in the past five years alone, to get this course ready, it hasn't hosted a major since 1951. So there was quite a bit of work to keep the natural feel. Uh, it's a links course. So for those that aren't aware what that means, generally that means that it's a course that's built along a coastal front um, and has you know a considerable amount of dunes. You won't see a lot of water on the course, uh, but it's the amount of undulation that you're going to see leading into these crazy greens uh, with high fescue and deep bunkers. Um, there was quite a bit of work, really, to get this course updated so that it could fit today's modern game and the technology that the players are using. Um, it's about 7,300 yards, which is a, f- a fair amount uh, for, for a major championship. Um, and what's, what's really interesting about it is, you know, it's based in Northern Ireland, so you know, obviously, when you think about traditional golf uh, and, and you think about, you know, playing overseas, I mean, this course on TV is going to look just like the image you have in your mind when you think about old uh, traditional golf course. So it's got that natural feel, but it's been uh, there's been plenty of renovations. There are new greens that are brought in. They redesigned several holes on the front nine. They redesigned all of the – there's a new number 18. Um but, you know, you're going to get all those traditional values as well. It's going to be cold. It's going to be rainy. There's going to be plenty of wind along the coastal holes. Um, it's, you know, when you look at the actual course itself, Mike, it's actually very fair set up. I know we've talked on previous podcasts, you know, oh, for the U.S. Open, this is going to be really advantageous for the, the long hitters or, oh, this is really tight fairways. You're going to have to be super accurate. If you really look at the holes themselves, it's pretty even split in those that are, you know, you can hit it long and and take your chances trying to make it to the green in two. Uh, But there's also plenty of those holes that are super, super narrow. So it doesn't really favor any one particular style this week. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So you sound like it's pretty wide open this event. You think that pretty much anybody has a shot here at this event. It makes it, this might be, of all the tournaments we've talked about in, in the years we've been doing this podcast, this might be the one where I had the hardest time coming up with who am I going to put out there as my pick and, and who's going to be the, uh, you know, where do I think the field is going to go this week. You can kind of tell when you look at certain majors, the guys that rise to the top, they're playing a certain style of golf. Um, this one's going to be really tricky just because it's so traditional links oriented so there's a lot of American golfers who uh, are now going to be taken overseas, and you don't know if their game is going to translate or not. So uh, it, um, very, very difficult week to pick a winner. Yeah, it does sound very difficult week to pick a winner. Let's talk, dive into some of the names of the players that are going to be here. Obviously, one thing that caught my attention of late was uh, former major champion Patrick Harrington. He recently called out Tiger Woods. He thinks that Tiger is repairing enough for these major tournaments because after the Masters, he only played once – between the Masters and the U.S. Open. He has not played since the U.S. Open. So do you agree with Padre? you think the Tiger is not preparing enough for these events? I will say this. I read the article. Uh, my opinion is that it's Tiger Woods, and he can honestly do whatever he wants in terms of preparation. I, you know, it, it's hard because Patty obviously has been on tour for a long time. He's very well respected. He's several years older than Tiger, and, and he's been there through this whole era. He's competed against him. So he, he definitely has some insight into what Tiger's game is like. But at the end of the day, nobody should ever be questioning Tiger's will to win and his ability to prepare and come out and, and be dominant at any given week, even at this late stage in his career. Tiger knows his swing better than absolutely anyone, and he's going to do whatever it takes to get ready. So, you know, my opinion is that Tiger really isn't in the business of embarrassing himself. So he's not going to enter a tournament unless he's going to be ready. So 
I respect Patty's idea of, of you know going out and playing uh, you know some links golf overseas to get to get prepared, and that might apply to other younger players who haven't had the kind of careers Tiger. But at the end of the day, it's Tiger Woods. He can go out any week and and if his game is together and still beat all the best in golf. So it, it's hard it's hard to tell you know Tiger to really do anything different at this point, right? I mean, <laughs> it's tough. So. Yeah, yeah, I mean, when, you, when you've when you won uh, 15 majors, you can pretty much do whatever you want. Exactly. So I respect Patty's decision. He's he's a well-respected guy on tour, you know, um, and, and, you know, his opinion definitely carries weight. But at the end of the day, Tiger's going to do what's best for Tiger, um, and, and he's proven to be successful. You know, he's he's got another major this year. So I, I think he knows what his body needs at this point to prepare, and maybe it is rest. And so maybe we get a rejuvenated Tiger and, you know, he plays well this week and he goes on and makes another run through the FedEx Cup. All right, let's go to another guy who I think is a sentimental favorite this week. It's uh, Rory McIlroy, obviously going home to Ireland to play in at Royal Port Rice. So what do you think of Rory's chances this week? You know, Rory's the favorite. Um, the, the odds, I think, the last time I looked were 8-1 to one for Rory, which I think is a bit unfair um, for those of you that don't know, his hometown, uh, Rory basically grew up uh, an hour south of where Royal Portrush is, you know, by car. So not very far. These are the kinds of courses and conditions that he grew up playing in. So naturally, everybody's going to be like, he's got to be the favorite. He's had a great season, and he's been pretty solid in all three other majors this year. You know, he was tied for 21st at the Masters. He was, I think, a T9, a tied for ninth at the U.S. Open, and tied for eighth at the PGA. So he's he's been top 25 at the other majors. Uh, you know, he's got a win at the Players. Um, you know, he played great at RBC Canadian. I, I it, it's hard to say that he um, deserves the pressure when he's had such an amazing season already. But there's naturally going to be pressure on him because this is his hometown um, or close to his hometown. For me personally, you know, I like the Rory McIlroy that is in the mix on Saturday. Maybe two or three strokes back from the lead going into Sunday. Um, I I think he's got a real chance to win if he's in that hunting mode. Everybody always talks about Rory and they're like, oh, well, he's on his game. He's basically untouchable. When he's hot, there's not many that can compete with him. Um, I'm hoping that he, he plays well enough Thursday, Friday, Saturday to be in the mix, and then that Sunday we just get that Rory, you know, he's eight under, uh, he makes this massive charge up the leaderboards and, and just has an amazing day. It's going to be really tough with those conditions, but, um, you know, that's, that's what I'm looking for because, you know, it can really, um, it can really do a lot for, for the viewing experience when Rory's on on Sunday. And I just I prefer to watch Rory hunting rather than trying to hold on to a lead. Okay, that's cool. I'm looking forward to seeing how Rory does here. Let's go a little rapid fire on a few other guys. You tell me you think that you're in on them or you're out on them this week. Let's go with uh, Brooks Kepka, who won at the PGA earlier this year. Are you in or out on Kepka? Okay, uh, rapid fire here. I'm, I'm out on Brooks, not because of the stats. Brooks, you know, everybody's like, oh, does his game translate to the links, you know, that kind of cold Irish golf. Not because of that. His stats are pretty good to support he'll do well, but just because of the hype and the burnout at this point. He's, he gets up so much for these majors. He's played a lot this year. He's done very well this year. So it's like I just don't think he can keep it going at this point. So that's the only reason I'm out on Brooks winning. All right, uh, John Rahm. Well, that's one I'm interested. In. I'm I'm in on Rom. Uh, for those that were watching, he won the Irish Open this past week. Um, he seems to have finally put his game together. I know I've picked him at other majors earlier in the year. If there was ever a time to say, okay, Rom's got it going, it, it's definitely going into this week. He will. He's somebody that I'm very confident will be in the top ten at least. All right, uh, Dustin Johnson. Um, I'm going to go out on Dustin. Um, I, I just kind of worry about his ability to keep it in the fairway. Uh, you can get into a lot of trouble here with the fescue. Um, and and I, I really think that, uh, you know, his game, I think right now I saw that he was, I think he's like 180th in driving accuracy on tour right now, which, which isn't great for a guy as high up the FedEx Cup standings as he is. Uh, you know, he was cut at the Rocket Mortgage Classic. 
um, I don't, which is I think his last appearance uh, on tour at least, um, which which doesn't mean that it's not showing me that his game is peaking at this exact moment. So I I think that just the signs are pointing to out on him. All right, our defending champion Francesco Molinari. Molinari, definitely, you know, defending champions, it's hard to pick against, but I'm out on him as well. If you looked at his current play, um, I think he was, uh, other than, like, he finished top 15, or no, he was 16th at the U.S. Open, but other than that, he's finished outside the top 45 in five of his last six events between both the European Tour and the PGA Tour. So that's not really trending in the right direction. He's he's a guy who has got to have, when his game is together, he can he can be just relentlessly good. Um, but right now, it's trending the opposite direction. I mean, five out of six tournaments outside the top 45 means that something is wrong. Something is something's off. So I'm out on him. Okay, I'll give you one that we didn't talk about earlier, but one I'm intrigued by. That I just thought of him, Jordan Spieth. Hmm. Jordan's gonna be really tough. Uh, I really don't know what to expect from Jordan this week, but uh, so I'm going to say out on Jordan, um, and not just. I, I think he's due. I think I mentioned last time we were talking that I, I kept trying to wait. You know, Jordan's going to piece it all together. He's going to get healthy. If he can be accurate off the tee, he's one of the best in the world striking the ball with his irons and giving him chance. And when that putter's on, I mean, he's another guy just like Rory that can just piece them together. But Jordan, I feel like he, we're trying to get his confidence back in himself. And I don't know when that's going to happen, but when it does, he's going to be back to his old ways. One that I will say um, that I'm going to just give you, it's, it's one of my wild cards, somebody that I'm really in on, is Justin Thomas. People have kind of quickly forgotten about how good Justin Thomas is. He, he injured his wrist earlier this year, so he hasn't actually been playing very much. But he went out last week. I think he played... Um, he was playing also at the Irish Open or the Scottish Open. Uh, I think he finished uh, tied for ninth there. So he's played recently, link style golf, uh, and and finished in the top ten. So watch watch out for Justin Thomas because he could be the guy to beat this week. Uh, interesting. I'll definitely keep an eye on him. And one more from my rapid fire list: Tommy Fleetwood. Hmm. So Tommy Fleetwood, I'm in on Fleetwood, and he is one of my picks this week. Uh, I've got a deep sleeper, and I've got a somewhat sleepy pick. Uh, Fleetwood is my somewhat sleepy pick. I'm not call- Everybody knows his name now. He's, he's a very popular guy. He's got the hair. He's got that swag. He wears the Nike gear. Everybody's starting to recognize him kind of domestically here in the U.S., so he's no longer an unknown commodity. Um, Fleetwood's got six top 20s on the PGA Tour this, this year, and you know, spe- specifically if you look at the courses he's done well in, they're the ones that favor the shot maker. Don't have to be incredibly long off the tee, but you've got to be able to strike the greens. I talked a little bit earlier about the undulation to expect. I mean, wait till you see this on TV this week. Those greens, I mean, depending on where they put the pin, you're, you could go be short of the green, over the green, back to the front of the green. I mean, there, there could be, if the wind is up and the rain is there, it could make for some really crazy putts. So I, I think that the ability to put the ball close to the pin in regulation is, is going to favor guys like Fleetwood. So um, I think he's going to be hungry. He hasn't had a great showing in other majors this year. He has not been very good. Uh, so I think this course being overseas uh, will fit with his game, and I think he's going to come out extremely aggressive. So expect to see Fleetwood in the top ten at some point. You mentioned you, Fleetwood was one of your sleeper picks. So give me your other guy, your deep sleeper, who you like this week. Uh, so this is this is a deep sleeper. Uh, this this is uh, my man Matthew Fitzpatrick from England. He's going out, I think, at eighty to one. Uh, but here's why I like him. So he's got three top ten finishes in his last four events between the PGA Tour and the European Tour events. Uh, he finished tied for 12th at the U.S. Open, and he had a, a solo second finish at the BMW International Open uh, earlier this summer. So, you know, he's got, he's got some good numbers this year. He's trending in the right direction. He's only 24 years old. He kind of looks like Rory's little brother uh, a little bit. If you kind of look at the photo, you can kind of see, like, there's a little bit of resemblance there. Um, but, 
you know, he's had some great success. He's got three solo seconds. Um, and maybe this is the week that he puts it all together. I, I'm, I'm high on the Fitzpatrick train. So uh, I, I think that he's just starting to be confident and knowing what it takes when the camera is on him and the crowds are following him, how to maintain his composure and play great golf. So if he gets off to a good start, I'm going to look really good, uh, but also I, I'm, I'm, I'd be happy for him. All right, that sounds good. Matthew Fitzpatrick, a name to watch here. So let's put it on the, all on the line here. Who is your pick to win the Open this week? This is going to shock a, a few people, but I'm going with Xander Shoffley. This is my guy. I, I, I love, love his game. Uh, he hasn't played since the U.S. Open in June, but you know he finished solo third there. He was 16th at the PGA Championship, and he had that tied for second run at the Masters. So three top 20s in the majors. Um, I definitely think he's going to bring it this week. He's already won twice this year it, it, uh, in the wraparound 2019 season. Uh, it would really, you know, he obviously won the Tour Championship in the past. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I, I just think that this is a guy who uh, is, is primed to win a major. And I think he'll get his game kind of translates well. He can be long off the tee when he needs to. He can dial it in with the irons. As long as the putter is going Thursday and he gets off to a decent start, this is a guy that's just going to keep chipping away until he's at the top of the leaderboard. So I'm all in on Xander Shoffley. I think he's going out at 20 to 1 right now. Uh, definitely big, big on Xander. All right, Dan's very big on Xander. And this is our last big golf check in on the podcast this year. But golf season still goes on after this. The FedEx Cup playoffs are next month, and Dan, you were telling me off air that they are doing some interesting changes this year. Can you break down some of those? Yes, um, I can. Um, so the biggest thing that, that for the casual golf fan to realize is that this year the FedEx Cup playoffs are going to be a little different from a viewing perspective uh, because of how the Tour Championship will be run. So I'll start off with just a quick quote from Commissioner Monaghan on the PGA Tour. It basically wrote, win the Tour Championship, and you are the FedEx Cup champion. In years past, based on the system that the PGA Tour works through the FedEx Cup program, basically players earn not only money by winning events, but they also earn FedEx Cup points. And those points carry all the way to the end of the year, and the highest um, points getters, the top 30, make it to Eastlake for the Tour Championship. Very simple, right? Well, here's where it gets confusing. In the past, those top 30 players were all competing to win the Tour Championship. But say, you, Mike, that you were in first place and you had, you know, 5,000 points, and I'm in 30th place and I have, you know, for example, 1,500 points. Even though I, in 30th place, won the tournament, you might have finished high enough and had more points, so you would win the FedEx Cup even though I won the golf tournament. So there would be a confusion. And that has happened three times in the first 11 years of the, of the FedEx Cup. The winner of the Tour Championship has not won the FedEx Cup, which for all of you that are listening that don't know, is a mega prize of, I think this year we're over $11 million in additional bonus um, to the winner. So you might win the $2 million for winning the, the tournament, but you get an $11 million for winning, or more, actually, to um, win the FedEx Cup. So what they're doing instead is they are um, the number one player in the FedEx Cup standings going into Eastlake. So if you're number one of the final 30, you're going to, your points are going to, all the 30 players, are, their points are going away. The number one player in the FedEx Cup standings is going to get a 10-stroke lead the very first day of, of the Tour Championship. If you're number one, you're starting at 10-under. The number two player is going to start at 8-under. Number three is going to be at 7. Number four will be at 6. Five at 5. And then players ranked from 6th to 10th will start at 4-under. 11th to 15th will start at 3-under. If you're 16th to 20th, you'll be at 2-under. 21st to 25 at 1, and then players 26 to 30 will start at even par. So it gives everybody the chance to win. But say I'm 30th, I'm already 10 strokes behind the number one guy. But what if everybody plays terrible and I play great? I can still win the tournament and the FedEx Cup. It puts it all on the line. It, it, for earning that first place in the FedEx Cup standings, it gives you a credible leaderboard 
advantage. Um, so it's easier for the viewers to digest knowing that, okay, you know, Matt Kuchar was number one in the FedEx Cup. He's at 10 under. And then you just play the tournament. If Matt Kuchar makes it to 22 under, he wins the turn. And, and everybody else is behind him. He wins because, you know, he had earned those points throughout the year and he had played well enough to hold on to his 10, you know, those, those 10 under starting point. Um, it's going to be really easy for the fans because in the past, you know, as the final groups were coming down the stretch, it was confusing, you know, who was winning the tournament, but what does that mean for the points? And the points would change based on where other people finished in the seedings, and it got really, really convoluted. This year we're really excited. It's going to be super simple. Your points translate to strokes, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's anybody's game in, in the last week. Yeah, it sounds a lot of fun. Might be a little sticker shock. People turn on the TV and say, what? Like, uh, number one guy is 10 under. They've only played three holes. It makes no sense. And then once you get into it, I feel like people understand it better. Exactly. And I think it just makes it so much simpler to digest. In years past, if you've watched the broadcast, they would have to pull up these interactive scoreboards where they were saying, and if this guy makes it to 10 under, uh, but, but this guy finishes fourth, he'll win the tournament, but he'll win the FedEx Cup because that gives 2,083. It, they're going to get rid of all of that, all those mathematical equations. You needed a, It's almost like you needed to have a degree from MIT to understand what was going on. But now it's just going to be super simple. It's going to be a little bit of shock to know that somebody's starting the tournament with 10 strokes under par. But at the same time, it's going to make it very clear by the weekend why that was earned. And it just brings the season all together. It makes sense now. What you do during the year matters. It's like having home field advantage in the playoffs, right, for the NFL. You know, you earned it during the regular season. You get that opportunity. I mean, we all know how important home field is. So now you're just going to get those 10 strokes and that you earned that by, by playing your best golf. So the best player throughout the entire year is going to win the FedEx Cup. And that's what matters. Yeah, that does matter indeed. Dan, thanks for all the time. Before I let you go, y'all everybody know how to follow you on social media and some of the stuff you're up to. Sure. So you can find me at Out of Town Fan Podcast. Um, I We're on a bit of a hiatus right now during the summer, but it's going to kick back up when training camps start. Um, you can also follow me uh, at DMART, D-E-M-A-R-T, 207, on Instagram. All right, Dan. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Mike. See you. All right. That was Dan Martini on the Open Championship. Up next, we're going to Gale Nation. We're going to talk to Gale Nation guard Zach Lewis about his time at Iona and his expectations for the upcoming TVT tournament right after this. Miss for Cruz. Danger time right now for Fairfield, the sixth seed. Look out for the trailer. It's Lewis for three. Boy, what a good pass. All right, we are back on the Just and Suffering podcast. That call you just heard was Zach Lewis drilling a big three-pointer for Iona in the 2018 MAC Championship game in their win over Fairfield. And Zach Lewis is my next guest on the podcast. So I got to know my time, Iona. Zach, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me, man. How's everything? I'm do- doing very well, Zach, yourself. <laughs> Good, good, good. All right. For in case people are not aware, Zach played his, his uh, grad transfer year Iona. Before that, started out at Canisius, transferred to UMass. When you came time to be a grad transfer, why did you end up coming to Iona? Um, really, I think the the basketball culture as well as uh, the master's program. As you know, I was in a sports communication and media masters, and that was something I I really wanted to do before I uh, finished school. So getting that, and as well as the basketball culture, the history of the great guards that have played for Iona, Coach Cruz, and at the time, uh, Coach Grosser was there as well. They they really did a, a really good job recruiting me and developing me as a player throughout the year. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned you came as a grad transfer, and obviously that's a relatively new phenomenon in college basketball where you finish out your eligibility at one school, then you have the extra year, and you can go play immediately somewhere else. Do you feel like that was a valuable experience for you to have that post-grad year as a player? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, just having going into a program with experience and being able to help the younger guys as, as well as learning myself. I'm learning the, the, the new system, but I'm able to help the younger guys know what it is to be a Division One player and what it takes, to you know, like the day-to-day things of being a college basketball player. So it was great. It, it was a great experience for me. Yeah, it definitely sounds like I remember I, I talked to you a lot and that year. You had a lot of fun there, and obviously you had a lot of fun with Coach Cluis. So can you talk to me a little bit about what it was like to play for him? Oh, man. Uh, 
it was up and down because you know he he demands greatness out of everybody that's on the team. You know, he sets the bar, the standard so high for his players that it, it, it gets difficult to do it every every single day. But I mean, it's a it's a learning experience, and it's really he's teaching life lessons out there. Really, just to never give up and just keep going, even when things are hard. Always fight through, and you you see how. All his Iona teams have come alive during during March in the MAC tournament just because we we practice those values every day in practice. So, yeah, great. absolutely. I mean, John Rossi has said it best. Said like the Iona runs the MAC, and Tim Clewis is March for Iona, so he just runs <laughs> that league. Oh yeah, no, that, that that's for sure. I mean, he he has the blueprint of how to win, and he gets great guys in the system year in and year out. And I mean, it's, it's unbelievable to to win four years straight. I I can't even believe it. So I'm just happy to be a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, when you were here, you guys get to the MAC championship against Fairfield. You end up winning the most outstanding player of that MAC tournament. Can you talk about what it was like that weekend up in Albany? Oh man, it was great. I mean, being, being a grad transfer, me and TK were up there just so excited for it for us to be the end of college basketball, but really the the start of a new chapter for us. So we we're just locked in. You know, we're just getting ready we want to win you know the uh, the basketball history at Iona is so great that we just had to you know hold up to our expectation of what we've been doing every day in practice and we, that's what we did we, we we showed up that weekend so it was great yeah I mean it was fun especially in the championship game I mean I was here at Iona like we're doing work for all of our classes and then we turn on we had the game on in the background we see you just drilling threes grabbing rebounds <laughs> getting assists I and mean, you were all over that game oh yeah it, it was great I mean it's the bright lights. That's what, as a kid, that's what everybody dreams of being in that moment. So just to be there and have opportunity to have a big impact in the game was it was huge and something I'm going to remember forever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you guys get through your get to the NCAA tournament as a 15 seed. You guys end up drawing Duke in the first round. You get this Blue Devils lineup with guys that all five of them got went to the NBA after the year. You played mm-hmm. the Marvin Bagley, Wendell Carter, Grayson Allen, Duke team. So. What was that like playing against those guys and and meeting Coach K and stuff like that? Oh man, I mean, it's just it's, it's a part of the experience. It, it was great. I mean, to play against NBA players, future lottery picks, it's, it's something you get to do once in a lifetime. So to go out there and compete against those guys was great, and also to to meet Coach K and you know share a few words with him was also great. I mean, you know, he's a he's a legend. So I mean, to to, to talk to him for a second, to play against his team, just to be on the court with those guys. It was, it was an honor, and it was, it was fun to be out there. Yeah, you mentioned Coach K said some words to you. you remember what he said to you? Uh, I, don't, I don't remember exactly what he said, but to sum it up, he was just saying uh, we had a hell of a year, um, that I, I was a good leader and stuff like that. So, I mean, just to hear those type of encouraging words from him was, was great, and it, it really propelled me to have a good rookie season overseas. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, if one of the greatest coaches ever comes up to you and says, you're a good leader, that's got to send chills down your spine. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned also, before we move on to your overseas stuff, I mentioned, remember, when you came back from that game, the one thing you said about those Duke guys is, man, they are so big, and they're so, the size is such a big deal. Can you describe what that's like? Oh, yeah. I mean, the big, I think that year they had Wendell Carter and Marvin Bagley. And, I mean, it's, it's tough to move those guys. You know, I know we play four guards all, all the time. So, it's tough to, you know, battle down there with those big guys. And then their guards are are physically bigger. Not so much taller than we were, but physically bigger than we were. So, I mean, it's just tough to get rebounds. Even if they miss, you know, Martin Bagley coming up, getting a rebound and one, whatever the case may be. So, I mean, it's tough. But it was fun just to be out there to compete. Yeah, so after the year is done, you finish up at Iona, you – you have, we have our, our class together where this podcast was born, and then we, you go off to play in Switzerland. So can you give me some of your highlights of your first pro year in Switzerland? Oh, man, it was great. I had, I had a really good year. I averaged uh, 22 points, five rebounds, four assists. So I had a good year. I was, I was looked upon to be a leader and definitely uh, one of the bigger offensive threats in the league. So it was fun. I, I had a great time, and I would say I, the biggest difficulty was just, you know, adapting to the culture and, you know, just just the small things about day to day living over there is just a little bit different. But overall, it's a great experience, and I mean, it's basketball. I get to play basketball for a living, so yeah, I can't really complain. No, I would absolutely be thrilled if I got to play basketball for a living. That sounds like a lot of fun. But you mentioned also like that there's a lot of challenges between people who don't realize that everybody who doesn't make the NBA or the G League, a lot of people go play overseas, and it's a big difference culturally. So like, what was the most challenging thing for you in terms of having to adjust to living overseas while you're trying to pursue your basketball career? 
Oh, man, I think uh, not being able to see my family was, was the biggest part. You know, around holidays, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, you you know, you want to be around your family and spend time. You know, you probably have nieces and nephews and things like that that you want to see. So I think that was the hardest part for me. And as well, it's just, I think, bad days. You know, sometimes you just have a bad day. Over there, it's just a little bit worse because you're, you're really by yourself and you don't have your family support to help you physically there. But... I mean, overall, it was it was a great experience. It was, I mean, I'm playing basketball. I'm living in a different country. I get to see beautiful things. So, honestly, all in all, it's something that I want to do until I can't play anymore. You know, if I was if I had your ability, I would absolutely be pursuing that career path as well. So, you're obviously you got roped into the Gale Nation team for TBT tournament this year. So, how did you first hear about the TBT? Man, I've been I've been I think it's been alive for a few years now. So I've been I've just been watching. I remember last year. When Sean Armand, Steve Bird, I'll say Roundtree was playing, AJ English, I'm pretty sure was playing. I watched those guys and they they had a great run. Man, they they played really well in the tournament. So, well, when they asked me to play this year, I, was, I hopped right on. I was like, of course, I'll definitely play and you know represent Iona and play with some of the alumni here. Yeah, I have to say off off topic here. I'm gonna post a link to the uh, Twitter account in this podcast. I saw the uniforms the other day. They look incredible, man. Oh yeah, oh yeah. We're gonna, those uniforms are, are fire. So I can't, I can't wait to put those on. Now, I like those, uh, the new Puma gear that's coming out. It's, it's looking real good. So I can't wait to play. Yeah, it looks a lot of fun. I mean, you're one of the first time guys playing for our Gale Nation. One of the few of them actually. Well, a couple of your team, former teammates here, and Ricky McGill and TK Adogi. So how excited are you to play with those guys again? Oh man, I'm so excited. I know Ricky had a, uh, a great senior year. That he ended up capping it off, went four years straight. So that's I mean, remarkable. I, I don't know many people have done that, so that's great. And TK had a great year overseas, so I can't wait just to link back up with those guys and, and compete how we used to out there. So it's going to be a good time. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun for sure, I think. And you guys are up in the Syracuse region this year. You drew a 5C, I think it's the highest for Gale Nation ever. You're taking on Fancy in the first round, so can you give me a little bit of a preview of what you guys are expecting to do in that game? Oh, man, I know it's going to be a good game, but I know they have some good players. I know... Uh, I want to say D'Angelo Harrison's name. What's the guy with the St. John's? I think that he he plays on this team. So I know they're going to be good. It's going to, it's going to be fun to get out there to compete. But I mean, I'm I'm really excited to represent the Gales again, and you know, have that Gale Nation on our chest and play with my guys again. So it's going to be fun, and we're definitely going to leave it all out there. Yeah, I mean, if you guys get through, I think you guys get Bayheim's already in the second round, and they think they've tangled with with Gale Nation before. So it'd be nice to get a shot at them again. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. A chance to play against Syracuse. I hope they go zone, you know, bombs away. <laughs> yeah, I feel like bombs away would be a good, would not be a great strategy for any Iona-based team that loves to shoot outside. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Hey, Zach, I appreciate all the time you're giving me today. Before I let you go, do you want to let everybody, let, do you want to let everybody know how to follow you on social media and some of the stuff you're up to? Oh, man, yeah, definitely. Uh, follow, follow my Instagram, ZLewis1. My Twitter is ZLewis1 as, uh, as well. So, I know I just post all, all pictures about me being overseas, me in the gym and things like that. So, definitely give me a follow. Yeah, I follow Zach on Instagram and Twitter. He's a great follow, guys. I highly recommend you follow him. Uh, I appreciate that, Mike. Zach, once again, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, no problem. Thanks. All right, there you have it. That was Zach Lewis, I, former Iona guard, playing for Gale Nation again Gale Nation, the TBT tournament. You can follow them on Twitter at Gale Nation TBT. Their first game, July 26th, 5 p.m. against Fancy. You can watch it on ESPN3, and you can catch all of the TBT games on the ESPN Plus app. Up next, this week's two-minute drill, where we're going to break down the end of Wimbledon 2019, the fantastic finishes, including the dramatic men's championship between Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic right after this. Novak Djokovic, an historic five-set fight for a fifth Wimbledon title. (laughs) Tastes good right now. Taking it all. All right, we are back with this week's two-minute drill. We are recapping the end of Wimbledon, the second week. When we last left off on Matic Monday, we had a lot of possibilities, and we got, I think, as fun a week of tennis as we possibly could have gotten out of this. 
Let's start on the women's side. We have we end up with the final of Simona Halep, the 2018 French Open champion, against seven-time Wimbledon champ Serena Williams. Williams is a heavy favorite coming into this match, but she ends up getting severely outplayed by Halep, who wins 6-2, 6-2 in 56 minutes. Serena in that match just got pushed all over the court by Halep, who played one of the best matches of her career and earned the most prestigious title in tennis. A lot of props to Halep, former world number one, clearly a big threat going forward into the U.S. Open, but it also raise a lot of questions about Serena Williams. Serena sitting on 23 Grand Slam titles, one behind Margaret Court for the all-time record. She has now lost three Grand Slam finals over the past year, lost Wimbledon 2018, lost the U.S. Open 2018, lost the Wimbledon this year. Remember, she is 37 years old now, and you have to wonder at this point, can she get through seven matches to win a slam again? She's come very close a few times, as we've seen. She needs just that one to tie Margaret Court for the most ever, but she might need to reinvent herself a little bit to get that over the hump there. It might be a little mental at this point because she's come so close and had just these big, epic losses in these spots, so it's going to be interesting to see if she can reinvent herself for the U.S. Open in a couple of weeks. If not, maybe Australia in January. But definitely Serena, a storyline here going forward. The men's side, what an absolute delight this was. We start off in the semifinals. We get the epic rematch. That was 11 years in the making. Federer, Nadal, back at Wimbledon for the first time since the greatest match ever played in 2008. Federer wins that in four sets, but it was much closer than that. These guys just pushed each other again and again and again. And in the end, the difference was Federer's superiority on grass was massive. It was an epic match, go back and forth, excellent shot making, great display of wills, and hopefully we get one more of these showdowns at Wimbledon in the near future. It sets up a final between Federer and our reigning champion, Novak Djokovic, who we heard at the top of the segment there, ends up winning this in an absolutely epic showdown. I said on many occasions, and a lot of times people agree, that the Federer-Nodal 08 at Wimbledon was the greatest match ever played. What we got yesterday was the greatest match ever played, the sequel. This match had it all. I mean, Federer absolutely dominates this match throughout pretty much, the first four sets. So, he goes through. He basically cruises. The only reason he's down two sets to one is because Novak Djokovic won tiebreakers. He could not break Federer until the fourth set. Ends up doing that. We get to the fifth set. It had momentum changes galore. Djokovic breaks Federer, grab a 4-2 lead, only see Federer break right back. Next game, 4-3. And I said, oh boy, this is going to be a fun one. Then we get to the extra games. They go 6-6. We get 7-7. Federer breaks Djokovic again. Goes to 8-7. And you think, this is it. He's going to win. He gets two championship points on Djokovic. What does Novak do? He fights right back. Breaks back. 8-8. We get the first ever tiebreak in a championship final. These guys were so evenly matched. Djokovic wins. He claims his fourth Grand Slam in the last five. His fifth Wimbledon title. Our longest final ever. Four hours and 55 minutes. And just watching it, it's one of those you hated to see somebody lose. Like, I, it was up to me. Like, I wish I could cut that trophy in half give them each a piece of it. Neither one deserved to lose that match. Federer, again, shows on his best day. He can still win a slam. I wouldn't be shocked if he does it again. He can go out at Flushing Meadows next month and win. I would not be shocked there. I'm a bit pumped, obviously, for Djokovic's win. I'm a big Djokovic fan. I was a Novak fan for it. It was cool. And it's very exciting to see him basically just dominate the sport again, get to his 16th Grand Slam. And it's funny now. As Martino Puccio, a friend of the podcast, pointed out on Twitter recently, tennis right now is basically going through a period where you have the equivalent of LeBron James, Michael Jordan, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar all playing at the same time with what you have now with Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer, and Novak Djokovic. All three of them 
have passed the previous career high slam titles with Pete Sampras. Djokovic's at 16. Nadal's at 18. Federer is at 20. And I'm telling you, man, this is going to be so much fun. We are in the golden age of tennis. These three are coming to Flushing Meadows in a couple of weeks to set up at the U.S. Open. Novak is defending champ there. Roger hasn't won in a while. He's due for one. Rafa is a threat everywhere he goes. It's so much fun right now to be a tennis fan. If you have not checked it out yet, please do so before the U.S. Open. You're definitely missing out. All right, and that's going to do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Dan Martini for coming by to talk all about the Open Championship and offer some insight into what's coming up for this week's Open Championship out at Royal Portrush in Ireland. I also want to thank Zach Lewis for calling in, talk about his time at Iona, his pro career overseas, and the Gale Nation TBT team. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, including my look at the decision the Rangers have to make with Chris Kreider coming up, check out the blog over at justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can also check out last week's bonus episode where I spoke to our podcast film critic, Jonathan Stanko, about summer movies This in our podcast feed as well. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Stitcher. Just search for Just and the Suffering on any of those platforms, and you can find the episodes there. Feel free to leave your feedback and star ratings or help make the show even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. Tweet me with the hashtag greatest match the sequel if made it to the end of this week's show. Next week, we're going to talk some football. We have a Giants training camp special coming up. We're going to talk about all the headlines around Big Blue, some baseball talk, and more. Until then, I hope you have a better week than Serena Williams. Yeah.